one of these books with you. Uh, feel free to take one. As I said, at least one per family. We should have enough, and I have some more on their way. Um, anyone that would take it and read it, I would be happy to provide that. So we are in our study together here in chapter 31 of Synods and Councils, and we've looked at the first couple of paragraphs here uh, last week. We were not able to conclude this, so we're beginning in the third paragraph this morning. Um, what is the place of synods and councils and their determinations for the child of God, in particular, uh, for what we're to believe? Uh, what is a rule of faith and practice? We've, we've come across this in the positive in the first chapter of the confession, which dealt with Holy Scripture. And we saw there the positive statement that Scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And here we see a particular statement uh, regarding the determinations of church councils or the meetings of church courts. So let's read together this third paragraph. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Now let's understand what the text is meaning, and then we'll look at these scripture verses together. Uh, all synods or councils since the apostles' times, uh, whether general or particular, may err. A general uh, synod or council just would have been broader in terms of the entire expression of the church or much more of it. Some of those early church councils uh, covered geographically a very large portion of the church in terms of its representation. Uh, a particular Senate or council would be more focused on a, a branch of the particular church. Um, typically, for example, uh, our Presbytery meetings. Uh, certainly not a general council in terms of uh, all of the known church being called in attendance. Uh, but a particular senate or council would, would be no different in this respect. That all synods or councils since the apostles' times whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Now, we don't have the historical uh, references here, but it's not a difficult thing to see that church councils have been called and um, disagreed with one another. Uh, there's been the need for a subsequent council to be called, uh, which pr provided a correction to a previous ruling of a senator council. So um, if anyone would say, well, no, they, they don't err or they haven't erred, well, not only can we look at the scriptures, as our confession is urging us to do, to compare these decisions to the word of God, it's not above or beyond the uh, discernment of each of God's children 
to compare the determinations of the courts of the church with the Word of God. Uh, but even just just noting and observing the, the, the uh, contradictions or the corrections from one council to the next, um, it shouldn't surprise us in terms of our own personal sanctification. Uh, we have a continuing growth in the grace of God. We have a continuing uh, growth of understanding in the Word of God. And what's true of us individually is also true of the church collectively. Um, so that statement, in light of that fact that they, they may err, they, they're filled with men, there aren't any infallible men present at these synods or councils, uh, they may err, uh, many have erred, what's the conclusion of this? Therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice. Again, what is the standard? Well, uh, this particular confession of faith is not just simply looking to the scriptures, but also aware of the history on this issue and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in particular, which basically says that synods or um, the Pope speaking ex cathedra, certainly, um, would be of an equal authority of equal standing and basically added to the body of the tradition which would become itself the standard going forward and this is where the confession that we hold differs and it's a significant difference that even in a case where the church has faithfully applied the scriptures in a determination even when that's the case it is not adding to the standard. It is simply a faithful application of the standard. And so what has proven to be the case in the Roman Catholic Church is there are doctrines taught and believed at present time which when you ask them, well, where did this come from? It is traced back to the teachings and the rulings and the determinations of the church in church history. Uh, they don't even at times claim any scriptural basis. They don't feel the need to because those church determinations are themselves a sufficient basis in the Roman Catholic teaching. That's not the case in terms of this confession of faith. We confess and believe that the standard is what God has given us. That's what the standard, the rule or standard of faith or practice is. You can't add to that in terms of what we're obligated to believe or what we're obligated to do. That comes directly to us from God. Now, that's not to say that as members of a church, as members of a presbytery, as members of a larger denomination, uh, there are times when our own understanding of God's Word is what is in need of correction. In fact, that is expected to be the case at times. And we are to be humble in that. Uh, we're to be open to being taught and corrected and uh, instructed better ourselves. And so it's not to say that frozen in time, the standard is our understanding of God's Word, but it is the standard is what God has spoken clearly in His Word, and there will be times when uh, we need to be 
um, persuaded and corrected and instructed in our own understanding of that. And the church is to function in that way. That's, that's her job, is to gather and teach and shepherd and perfect uh, through, the, through the administration of the means of grace to see God come and bless his people with a greater and growing understanding of him and his word. And so that's why, if you look to the end of this paragraph, they're not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. And so just like we saw last week in the, the Jerusalem council there in Acts 15, uh, these, these apostles, even as apostles, weren't adding to the standard, but rather they were appealing to the scriptures even in their day. And uh, in so doing, they were helping. They were helping those who had a flawed understanding who had an imperfect understanding. And, and there were those who came and I believe were persuaded uh, better by the Word of God and the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God. Of course, there were some that weren't persuaded and they would go on to uh, function as the Judaizers that Paul would speak about, uh, those brothers that rejected the gospel but uh, was there any point was there any benefit was there any blessing in having the jerusalem council we've said what it doesn't do these councils don't add to the word of god in terms of the standard of faith or practice but is there any benefit from them and there there is we see that in the scriptural example it brings great comfort and joy and peace to the church to have the ministers of God's people, the elders, meet together to consider God's word together, to uh, hear from one another in terms of explaining and pointing to various parts of Scripture, to better understand, to, to reach a common understanding that would be correct in terms of what God's word says about an issue. And so it is to be uh, a help. It is intended and provided as a help by the Lord Jesus. Let's look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We have this reference to the, the people of God being um, formed here in the new covenant. And in verse 11, uh, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is, both Jews and Gentiles, has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the thing that we particularly uh, are called upon to recognize in this passage, there in verse 20, is what is the foundation upon which the church is built. And we see this, this reference built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what was the function of the apostles and the prophets? They were the messengers, the agents, that God communicated his will to his people. He declared his word through the prophets. That's what prophecy was. It was speaking God's word to his people. And similarly, the apostles. The, the term means the sent ones. And who had sent them? Well, the Lord Jesus called these men and sent them. And he even told them, don't worry about what you need to say in those moments as my apostles. With this commission, I will give you the words to speak. I'm filling you with my Holy Spirit. I am going to be with you. And he used these men to speak and to, under their supervision, provide for the New Testament to be written to complete the canon of Scripture. And so this, this foundation that's referenced is, is another way of referring to the Scriptures, the Word of God. That's what the foundation of the church is built upon, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So certainly not seeking to diminish the building upon that foundation. We're thankful for the church that God has built before us and what we can learn from those who have gone before or even are with us in our current generation that God has gifted. We're to be humble and grateful and thankful to learn what we can. But how do we know when the teaching is a help and when it would lead us away? That brings us back to 1 John in chapter 4, where he urges the little children to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Or we have the example we looked at in Acts um, chapter 17 and, uh, and 18, with the example of the Bereans in Acts 17. Uh, that they examined the scriptures daily to see that these things were so. So the, the, the building that is being built, it's a blessing. It brings joy to us. We pray for the building of Jerusalem, to use the Old Testament terminology. We're praying for the building of the new Jerusalem now, the building of the church of God's people. Uh, but we have to be clear that this structure is not the foundation. We, we don't draw our doctrine from the church. Uh, the church itself is built upon 
the foundation of God's word. His will is supreme and his truth is the only sufficient foundation for our lives to be built upon. Um, Acts 17, uh, 11, that actually is our next reference to uh, those Jews at Berea. In verse 10 of Acts 17, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so even in the days of the apostles, even the apostles themselves being the teachers, their, their word was not treated as having a native authority, but they only had any authority in terms of their agreement with the word of God. And so um, as we think about what, what, what is a sufficient answer, well, why do you believe that? Why does your church teach that? We, we need to be able to answer those questions with a reference back to the Word of God. Well, we believe this because this is what God has said in His Word. Let's look at that together. It's not a good answer to say, well, we believe this because uh, the church fathers taught that or uh, a church council determined this centuries ago. That's not the foundation upon which the church is built. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is another good verse in terms of what it is that our faith must rest upon if it is to prove uh, durable um, and, and to avoid disappointment. Uh, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the same in terms of this issue of how we view the relationship between the councils of the church and the word of God. They're not the foundation. They can err. The only good foundation that God has provided for our faith to be built upon is the unshakable foundation of his word. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, here we have uh, uh, the, the implication or outworking of that in terms of Paul's relationship to the Corinthians personally. If, if they were to believe what he taught simply because Paul had come and spoken it as a man, uh, rather than by him showing that he was the messenger from God who was giving them God's word. Well, what would that result in? That would result in uh, Paul being the Lord over these people, that whatever he said, that's what they were to do and what they were to believe, regardless of what that might be. That wasn't the case. Notice in 
verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll, we'll actually back up. He is uh, seeking to make clear the character of what he has said to them. That he, he's not been just speaking as, as a man, uh, airing his own opinions. Uh, he's not been speaking in a way that was vacillating back and forth, changing his mind. The, the whole point of this passage is Paul is, is so concerned to clarify and for them to understand the only reason they should listen to him is because the Lord Jesus had sent him to them and had sent his word through the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, he, in verse 12, uh, is having to defend himself from the attacks. We don't have a, a forum here for the attackers speaking directly. But from Paul's defense, we can infer that uh, they were uh, undermining his um, legitimacy as an apostle uh, and his words they were seeking to undermine any authority of what he was uh, speaking and writing. In verse 12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not, with, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, pause there at verse 18 and consider what is he saying. He's saying that the reality that God is faithful is no more sure than the truthfulness of what Paul had spoken to these people. Now, what is he saying? He's claiming there that it's one and the same. Our words to you have been God's words to you. Our words to you are just as faithful as God himself is faithful. And not uh, some confusion of, of yes and no that would, could only arise from men. Uh, God himself can't lie. He can't say yes and no at the same time. And our word to you has not been yes and no. So down in verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
but I call God to witness against me. Now, he can't be more solemn, serious. Uh, he, he's, he is calling God as his witness now to judge the rightness of what he says and the truthfulness of it. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So, again, what was the situation? Well, Paul had indicated to them his desire to come. And that was a true and, and earnest desire. Uh, he had been delayed and had written this letter, rather, uh, to give them an opportunity of repentance. He didn't want to come and deliver 1 Corinthians in person. He wanted to call them to repentance and then come to witness their repentance. That's what he's saying here in verse 23. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And that's what uh, apparently these enemies of the Lord's that were there in the church of Corinth, they had heard, well, Paul wants to come. But then he sends a letter, said, well, he, he's weak, he's afraid, he, uh, he's changing his mind. He, he said he wanted to come, but now he's just sent a letter. Uh, they're, they're accusing him and seeking to use this as a way to attack him. But notice, notice in verse 24, again, the context being, what is the character of the word that Paul had spoken, the message he had spoken to them? Well, it's just as faithful as God himself is faithful. It is God's word, and that's very important in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. You see, Paul here is showing them uh, in humility the contrast between him, the authority of his message only comes by it being the word of God. Otherwise, he would be lording it over them. He would just, well, it's because I say so. And that's what you're to believe, or that's what you are to do. The only way around that, the only alternative to men exercising lordship in a tyrannical way over the faith of other men is for God's word alone to have that absolute authority. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And so, very important to not have confusion. We, we don't reject as worthless the counsels and the synods that God has worked through. We see his hand working through to correct various errors, but we also see there's a mixture there. We see that they're, they're, they're uh, attended by fallen, by imperfect men with imperfect understandings, and we can look back and compare the decisions of councils through the history of the church to the Word of God and see where they were helpful and where they have erred in terms of what God has actually spoken. Uh, they're not to become part of the rule of faith and practice along with the Word of God in consequence, uh, but rather they're just to be used as a help a help in understanding God's word, uh, to, to be willing as the Bereans to receive the word with eagerness, but to search the scriptures daily to see that these things are so. That is 
uh, to be our view of the determinations of the courts of the church. God's word alone has that absolute authority. So down in verse, uh, not verse, the fourth paragraph then, we come to the matter of the proper subject of matter determined by synods and councils of the church. Now this, this is subject to misunderstanding, so we'll, we'll try to explain carefully what this paragraph is saying and why that's very important, and also what it is not saying and why that is important to recognize as well. First, let's read the paragraph. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Now, I'll just say that that paragraph has been misapplied in a rather large way since the writing of it in different times of the church. First, let's look at these scripture references that are listed, and then we're going to go back through, and we'll probably have to conclude this uh, next week with God's grace. But let's begin in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Here we have, in the account of the life of Jesus, uh, the following instance. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And the point of this passage in terms of uh, its application to our confession, I think, is simply recognizing the relative importance of these two different issues. The relative importance. Um, this Here Jesus is there, and what is he doing? He's there teaching an entire crowd of people about how they can have eternal life, an eternal unfading inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, and this man, a particular individual in the crowd, what's he concerned about? Well, he's concerned about getting his right share of an inheritance that he and his brother were having a dispute over. Now, it's not to say that there's not a place for righteous judgment in a matter like this. God's word provides 
the, the standard of justice that could be applied. But here was Jesus' response. Uh, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Uh, would it be good and proper? Would it be the right use of Jesus' time to stop teaching all of these people about how they might have an unfading inheritance to make sure that one that is going to perish within a lifetime at most is rightly divided? Here's a man, and his, only, his whole thought is consumed with making sure he has the right portion of the goods of this world. Uh, and completely closing his heart and, and, and occupying his mind with that instead of hearing the gospel of how he might be forgiven and he might be um, rich toward God as Jesus goes on to teach. Even if you have a, a great abundance of the possessions of this world, you might die tonight. Don't, don't be content just making sure you have an adequate provision for this life. Whether or not you're being defrauded, uh, that, that is an issue that could be addressed. But Jesus says, um, well, I'm not the judge or the arbitrator uh, that you need to appeal to on that. I'm dealing with this more important issue of how we might have eternal blessing. Um, don't be like the rich the rich fool who only thought about storing up the goods of this life, building bigger barns. Uh, don't, don't ask Jesus to stop teaching you about how to be right with God so that you can make sure you get the full portion of your inheritance in this life. Now, in terms of application to the church, was there, was there a place that this man could go and get redressed? There was. The judges of the land, uh, that's what Jesus is saying. I, I'm not here to fulfill that role. You need to go and, and address that elsewhere. I'm not going to stop the more important thing that I'm addressing uh, to provide that for you. In, in a similar, in a parallel way, the church and the civil realm each have a responsibility to address and each is equipped and called to address their respective responsibilities. Uh, the church would be leaving off of, first, firstly, leaving off of the more important matter to uh, undertake to become the civil magistrate. There is a more important issue in terms of being right with God understanding the gospel you can live in all in all manner of just or unjust civil societies and the more important issue is are you right with god do you have his blessing now i said more important it's not to say that it's not important there god has appointed a civil magistrate to address these things and that civil magistrate is to serve God as a minister, as we read in Romans 13, and is to provide justice according to God's word in the affairs of this life, but the church would be leaving a more important concern to undertake the duties of the civil magistrate. I'm trying to be very careful in how I describe that. This has been applied in 
the history of the church. I'll give you a real-life example. In the early 1800s in American Presbyterianism, this principle was applied to say the church shouldn't get involved in a messy, ugly, cultural issue uh, of slavery on this principle. Well, that's a social issue. It's a, it's a civil issue. The church is not called to do the job of the civil magistrate, and therefore, we're not going to address it in any way. Uh, we're going to be silent on this. We're not going to address the moral uh, obligations in this issue. Now, that's not what our confession teaches. I want you to notice, and we are running out of time, but notice that first phrase, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. In other words, we're not to become the civil court as a court of the church. We're not to say, well, we're going to try so-and-so for this crime civilly. We're not to handle or conclude that. That's not to say that we have no responsibility to address those issues as the church. We're just simply not to lay down the sword of the word of the Lord and take up the sword of flesh to deal with uh, these same issues. The church is called to wield uh, a separate sword, and we'll look at that more next week, but uh, each, each sphere of government has a tool to use, or a weapon, if you will. The civil government is given the sword of the flesh. In Romans 13, we read about that. But the church is not swordless. The church is to wield the sword of the word of God. And a faithful function of the church in that situation of the early 1800s would have been to not declare anarchy, not uh, use the, the force or the arm of the flesh to seek to rectify a situation, but she should have taken the word of God and applied that in her preaching and her teaching and her calls to all those uh, in their respective duties to honor God and to obey his word. And so silence is not what this, uh, this paragraph is calling upon the church. Um, let's, we, we have several additional references that I'm going to uh, have us go through next week. But let's just read through the rest of this paragraph again. And are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary. And I think the best way to understand this is that the church is not to undertake the role of the civil magistrate. So, for example, if there is... A, a trial of uh, civil affairs, some criminal charge or civil charge, it shouldn't be the church uh, coming in and saying, now here is the verdict that you should hand down, or here is, uh, I, I, we want you to find this person innocent. We want you to find this person guilty. In these particular cases, it would be a very extraordinary thing for the church to address the courts in that way and to say this case is such a clear case of injustice or what have you, a very extraordinary situation that the church would 
um, unsolicited weigh in on a particular case of the administration of civil justice. And that would even in, then, in, in that case be by way of humble petition. Now, that's not to say that the church is to be silent on the issue of justice. The church is to be teaching the judges and teaching the jurors and teaching all the people of the land in her prophetic function uh, as, as the minister of the word of God. She's to be teaching them the standards of justice and what pleases God and what is right and what is wrong and calling them to apply that. But that is, again, the context that this was written in was a context where church leaders were forming um, tribunals and executing civil penalties based uh, on the authority of church officers. And that, that is what they are condemning, something like Bishop Laud's Star Chamber, um, where, again, there, there were church gatherings, uh, church government uh, bodies handing out civil penalties and consequences, even up to and including execution. That's what this is condemning. It's not to muzzle the church. It's not to say that the church should not be teaching on all of these things openly. And we'll look at examples in the scriptures next week. Uh, I'll give you one you can look into before, between now and then. That would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist as a preacher of the gospel. What did he address? What was deemed uh, within the purview of the jurisdiction of a minister of God in his case? And look at his relationship with Herod. We'll have to continue this next week. As I said, we've... We've got several other verses in addition to those listed that I want us to look at. But very important that we uh, not exceed the right function of the church, and also just as important that we not uh, diminish that and fail to live up to what God has called us to do. And in more recent years, it has been the latter that has been the case. The church has been silent on social and cultural and civil issues and not applied God's word uh, to those. And that has led to uh, just an escalation of godlessness in our society. All right, we'll close with a word of prayer and uh, get ready for our time of worship. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you call us to speak your word with boldness and to function as the teacher in society, uh, the preacher, the, the one calling all men everywhere to repent of sin, of recognizing the reality of your reign in heaven, of acknowledging you as the God of all men and the Lord over all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords even, in fact. And we pray that uh, the church would uh, without overstepping, without undertaking to wield the sword of flesh, uh, would nonetheless take up the sword of the Spirit and with boldness and conviction once again fulfill her rightful role in instructing and teaching 
that your people who call upon your name might be well equipped to address the issues of life in their various uh, responsibilities and functions with good understanding of your word. For, Lord, all of life is to be brought into subjection to you and submission to you. You call us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, for revival, beginning with the church, that would spread throughout all of society in our land and throughout this world. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would come and meet with us and sanctify us as a people set apart for your own purpose as we gather to worship you. May we put you first in each of our hearts and not live any longer with an eye to our own pleasure and thoughts, but in a way that is consecrated to obedience to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.